I think over the years, the regulations that the, the public schools have put on teachers have really diluted what the teachers are able to do. For example, every six weeks, you have to give a test on a particular part of a curriculum. Mm-hmm. Or if you're in a mixed-age classroom with a three-year age span, you're not always teaching the same curriculum to every child. And as soon as they have to march lockstep to those external kind of uh, mandates, you're kind of losing the soul of what you're doing. So I think mm-hmm. the monster, I think, has suffered in the public schools. But when I was there in the 80s, it was really strong and really good. Yeah. Men, this is a reclamation project. Manhood in the West is broken in our homes, in our cultural institutions, in the church. Real men have gone missing. We're here, a Protestant and a Catholic, to confront that reality with the wisdom and truth of our respective faith traditions. Join us as we move from mediocrity to mastery, from apathy to action, from failure to freedom. Join us as we seek manhood restored. Mighty men of valor, welcome back to the Manhood Restored podcast, where we take a hands-on, head-first, hard-knocks approach to learning what it takes to make men mighty again. Today, we have a great guest for you, Dan Teller. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Good to be here. My name is Chad Stolle, and I will be your curator for this most rare exchange of ideas, standing guard as this episode's night watchman. Carrying yet another baton, ready to jab, strike, block, or bludgeon, is my co-host, Ben Neff. Ben, no sleeping on the job, you hear? Okay, well, don't be so boring. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to leave that to my uh, interviewee here today. I'll try. (laughs) (laughs) Man, you really set him up. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, Dan, when when we reached out to you, um, this has been months ago, by email, I, I literally had no idea how perfect the timing and your background would be for this episode. Um, we just finished recording an episode on education. I did an episode just prior to this on raising Generation Z. So we like we're right now like in our minds are right there, and and you I think have this unique. Um, unique approach or unique experience with education that I think it'll be just be an awesome follow-up to what we've already been talking about. I'm glad I can share it. Yeah. 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 Can you, um, can you tell us, I guess just to start some background personally, like how you've been drawn into education? Cause I'd be safe to say with all this, all these years in it, it's something you're passionate about. Very, very much. I think it's very important. Yeah. So you want to know how did I get into it? Yeah. Like, you know, Date yourself back um, to I, the start. Am I doing the bio, Chad? Oh, yeah, I suppose you should. All right. I mean, you gave me the bio. So <laughs> right. Here, you're going to read this. Let's do a bio. I'm okay. sorry. Yeah, yeah man, okay. I'm a, I, mean, I was just so excited to start talking. <laughs> bludgeon you with my baton. <laughs> I'm not sure how violent you're planning on getting today. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pen, basically. Violent with your words. All right, yeah. Dan Teller is the founder and director of the Good Shepherd Catholic Montessori in Cincinnati. Since it's the... Since its beginnings in 1998, it has grown from 28 preschool and kindergarten students to some 200 students up through the eighth grade. Dan has a long called education, has long called education as profession and passion, having taught Montessori for 11 years in the Cincinnati Public Schools and served as principal at St. Bernadette School in Amelia, Ohio, prior to Good Shepherd. He also currently trains catechists as a formation leader. In the Catechesis of the Mm. Good Shepherd, work on my Catholic words here, (laughs) program. Dan has been married for 40 years and has seven children and two grandchildren. Amen. Awesome. Well done. Yeah. Catechesis. You you guys don't use that word, do you? No. Catechetical. Yeah. It's kind of a fun word. It's for all Christians. Yeah. Yeah. Catechesis means passing on the faith. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, now you got some new terminology. Yeah, yes, I like so it. We're all called for that. Yeah. Try to break that out next time in Sunday school and see what happens. Okay. Yeah. See if I, yep. Time for catechesis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So my question was, 
Yeah, just a background. You personally, how did you come to education um, originally? I didn't really have any um, preconceived ideas. I was uh, in my when I was in my twenties. I was I got a job as a cook because uh, I knew how to be a cook, and I got a job as a cook at a school housed in an old mansion in Cincinnati called the New School, Montessori School. And at that time, there must not have been a Department of Health because <laughs> they had the little kids coming in to the kitchen where I was working and help prepare the meals and wow. um, you know do food preparation. And it was a Montessori program, and I was immediately taken by the children's activity, the respect given to the children. I thought it was just a great environment for children. And I, I'm not sure if I would say I was impulsive or if I was being uh, responding to the Holy Spirit, but I just thought, yep, this is what I want to do. Hmm. I saw it. I thought, this is really good work. So I enrolled as Xavier. I got my Montessori training and then became a Montessori teacher, as uh, Ben just said, at the Cincinnati Public. So, I mean, that early on, I mean, I didn't even, uh, Xavier would have had like a program Xavier is instrumental in part of bringing Montessori to America for its huh. second wave starting in the 60s. Um, they had some real po- Montessori pioneers in Cincinnati that sort of – now there's a training program there. There's many in, around, but Xavier's been around a long time for okay. Montessori training. I had no idea. And Ben, I don't know. How, fam- how familiar are you with Montessori as uh, a – I mean, a very little, but – Methodology. Yeah. I mean, I almost – I think our listeners would be – Beneficial, benefit them to hear an overview of it a little bit. If you could, okay. Uh, I'm trying to give. The, I'll give the elevator speech here. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, uh, Ma- Maria Montessori developed this. She started working with children in 1907. She was a doctor and became very interested in child development. And as she worked with children, she started working with dis- disabled children and then with normal children. She very keenly observed, as a scientist would observe, how do children develop. And she started to recognize universal traits of child development that weren't linked to a socioeconomic class, to a nationality. They were just part of who children are. And so in recognizing these developmental qualities, she said, what's the best way that we can respond to these? And based on that, she set up certain pedagogies and ideas and techniques for working with children. Um, Because children change as they get older, the approach of Montessori education changes with the child. So for a young child, a three- to six-year-old, it's very concrete. There's lots of movement, very hands-on. And as children get older, it's obviously much more abstract. Um, but there's always a big emphasis on the work of the hand, an emphasis on the, the power of the child to have a certain direction and what they're interested in doing with, with proper guidance, and a really rich curriculum with brilliant hands-on didactic materials for children that really make learning easy. There's a mixed-age environment in Montessori classrooms, which means that the, all, everyone isn't learning the same thing at the same time. So huh. lots of children are doing lots of different tasks at one time, and the teacher is actually called a guide, guiding children in their learning. So it can be very individually approached, for whether a child is really gifted or a child has a learning disability. You really kind of be able to, able to meet uh, each child head-on with what their particular needs are. That's fascinating. I mean, for a former teacher, mm-hmm. talked about pedagogy. Yes. You know, and this, like, I can't even fathom as how I was trained to be a teacher, how to run a classroom like that. Yeah, I always, I've always thought that Montessori teachers were very gifted with this brilliant approach that obviously I haven't described very in depth with a lot of materials, with a particular training, and then they can put that all into action in their classroom, as opposed to traditional teachers that get, you know, a classroom full of 25 children, desks and some books, and they've got to do their best, you know, and they do do their best. Traditional Mm -hmm. teachers are many gifted and trying very hard, but the Montessori approach has a real understanding of how children develop, how they learn, how do they best learn, what are the tools to help them learn, and what is an environment that lets them flourish. So teachers, when they're trained, really internalize that, and they have a lot in their arsenal to provide for children. I mean, is it, we've, we just finished talking about, you know, that the public education system. It's interesting that you said you started in the Cincinnati public schools doing Montessori. Yes. Uh, and, and I don't know how, how is that viewed in, in, I don't know, in the public school world? When I started the school I taught at North Avondale Montessori was Cincinnati's answer to desegregation. It was a magnet school. Hmm. And so they set up a whole system of magnet schools so that people could bring their children to a magnet school instead of staying in their neighborhood. And that's how Cincinnati went about with the desegregation issue. This was well after the civil rights era, but it was still in the early eighties. Um, so at that time, 
people really embraced the Montessori approach. The, when I worked there initially, it was a fine staff, really committed. And I think over the years, the regulations that the, the public schools have put on teachers have really diluted what the teachers are able to do. For example, every six weeks, you have to give a test on a particular part of a curriculum. Mm -hmm. Or if you're in a mixed-age classroom with a three-year age span, you're not always teaching the same curriculum to every child. And as soon as they have to march lockstep to those external kind of uh, mandates, you're kind of losing the soul of what you're doing. So I think mm -hmm. the Montessori, I think, has suffered in the public schools. But when I was there in the 80s, it was really strong and really good. Yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, it, the machine sort of yeah. took over. Well, I said losing the soul, which is back to that men without chest, you know, idea, C.S. Lewis, where, you know. Yeah. You're not focused on the heart and the holistic child and everything. You're just like getting facts in their head to pass a test. That's unfortunately how education is looked at in many ways today, isn't it? You know, not, not the, not the really person in front of you, but the data that they have to spit back. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a loss for children. And that can be so frustrating um, as a, as a parent, you know, and that's our listenership here, men and women listening, trying to um, do what's best for their kids you know, and I don't know how many Montessori schools in a, in a 60 mile radius there really are available. Yeah. Well, just to throw another wrench into the conversation, <laughs> um, I started this school um, when I had four children. I now have seven. Um, when I started the school, three of my children were too old to attend the school that I started, um, which is now called Good Shepherd Catholic Montessori. So at the time we were homeschooling our children. And so we actually, even though I'm an educator, started a Montessori school, ran a Montessori school, all seven of our children homeschooled basically all the way through high school. Huh. So I don't see a disconnect in that. What I see is looking at the child and determining what suits you best. Yes. And for those that are listening, I think that's where you have to be, you know, mm. really looking at your child and decide what's going to serve you best. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good word. I mean, even if like, I know there'd be some listeners that are homeschoolers, right? Yeah. And uh, at least maybe to have some peace with that to, for starters and then, and then understanding, okay, well, how do you do that? Because you you almost have to, if we've all gone through the public school and then you're trying to set yourself up, okay, I'm going to do homeschooling. What, what does that look like? You know what I mean? Because you have to almost unlearn some of the way school was done for you if you're going to set this up. That's really a good point because you're in a homeschooling setting, you're not trying to recreate the school setting in your home. Mm -hmm. You're raising a child and raising a child involves academic work, but it also involves your relationship to your siblings and to your parents and to the outdoors and to the natural world. And what are your passions and your gifts and where do you want to go in your life? You know, yeah. there's a lot to it. Yeah. I mean, it would take, take us back to that, the start of um, Good Shepherd Catholic Montessori and how, how, I mean, cause, cause I think if, if, you know, some of our listeners up this way, the Northern part of Ohio aren't going to have a chance probably to send their kids to a school like that, but what are you doing and what were you trying to do in a school like that, that might give us some insights as to how to approach that here, maybe in our own homes with our kids? Well, what I was trying to do is fulfill Montessori's view of the education of the whole child. So I had worked at a public school and lacked the spiritual component, oh. got a job as a principal at a Catholic school, but I felt like the educational technique there, the approach was not as good as what Montessori had to offer. Mm -hmm. So I felt like, well, I want to have something that has it all. And so that would be the Montessori approach, which is the whole child education with the spiritual component, with a real reference to truth and goodness and beauty that a Catholic school can provide. Mm -hmm. So when we started our school, that was the vision that we want to give children that complete experience of education where your cognitive self, your emotional self, your social self, your physical self, and your spiritual self, all of that is engaged in a real genuine way. Um, that's a real general idea. Do you, do I need to be more specific around that? Maybe. Um, and Ben and I were just talking about, what was the word again? The, the catechesis or the, Oh no, or the one, <laughs> that, that word that you are not so good at saying. Are you talking about the other form of education? Yeah. Classical the, Christian? No, uh, yeah, that too. But like um, you said, almost like the stew that the children bake in. The culture, the paideia? Paideia. Uh, basically, the pedagogy. In other, it's based comes from the word paideia. Oh, okay. And, and so this book, Battle for American Mind, discussed the paideia that they're bathed in, the culture of the school, and what you're raising them up, and what they're absorbing so when they come home and say, what'd you learn today? I say nothing. Well, they absorbed 
all of this paideia, this pedagogy's values environment instead okay. of the holistic yeah. child. So let me try to get you into the paideia of what we were trying to do. That's, yeah. I think, what you're asking. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that when children are given an environment where they're at ease, where they're comfortable and they're happy, they flourish as children. And so that was the first thing we wanted to do, mm-hmm. to let children be who they're meant to be. In the one sense, even this isn't linked to Montessori, I feel like children are innocent. And so we wanted to provide an atmosphere that was not polluted by all the way that media, and especially social media, really corrupts the lives of children. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't control how parents do that at home, but we could do an environment where we felt like we're not going to expose you to things that you're not meant to be exposed to at a a particular age, everything in its good time. Um, We wanted children thrive on being interested. Children want to learn. And so we wanted to give them a really rich learning environment with lots of interesting things, good lessons, interesting materials. Montessori is replete with brilliant lessons about how did the world come to be? How did humans learn humans learn how to create language? Mm. How did numbers come to be? How did life come on earth? These are kind of really big stories that are given in the Montessori elementary years. And children are really interested in those. It really excites them. And then when learning takes place within that, you know, they have a lot of interest in it. In addition, when children have a certain amount of um, control over what they do, or at least choice over what they do, they're much more engaged. So we wanted children just to be learning well, learning everything they need to do be, to be, you know, a good, fulfill who they're meant to be, their potential, um, to get along well, to know how to respect their, you know, their peers and how to solve problems, how to think creatively. And um, how to live as faithful Christians, you know, mm-hmm. how to be in, basically how to love Jesus. Hmm. You know, that's we felt like and that's what catechesis a good shepherd is so good at. It's like helping children encounter Jesus. So that would be the spiritual component of it. That would be the paideia we were looking for. And I will say that when you walk around the campus of our school, which is really nice, it's got 13 acres and these hillsides and the kids are outside building forts and you know, finding sticks in the woods and just making all these little clubs and things, which is in a really childlike, really dear way. Wait, this is a school? Yeah. 13 dur- acres? Yeah, during recess. During recess. <laughs> well, you got 13 acres? Still. Wow. Yeah, it was a real gift to, wow. to find this campus. Mm. When you walk around there, they're just happy children. They're just enjoying each other's company. There wasn't much bullying. Um, you know, they children would do childish things, but there wasn't like a real discipline issue. And I just think that's because they felt respected and they felt challenged and kind of fed. Their mind and their spirits mm. were fed well. And any human being gets that, they respond as humans will, and that is like happily. Yeah. And and engaged. It's such a such a contrast to what we were just talking about, Ben. Yes. Oh my goodness. You know? Yeah. I mean what what you can think of, we were just talking about how our kids, you know, uh, are going back to school here very soon, like uh, days yes. away. And, you know, there's this dread. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, you know, they've been at home all summer and, you know, maybe they haven't been uh, too productive, quote unquote. But boy, my kids have been going outside and building forts and they've been listening to audio books and, and reading books and wrestling and you know they're being happy being kids kind of what you're saying there and now what they what are they presented with i got to go back and i have to fall in single file line and go in motion with the bells and i got i mean the whole nine yards yeah i don't want to i want to give you one example from our school that i just think is delightful not every day is like this but at the end of the year the upper elementary classroom the teacher the science teacher gives the children a project they have to design a boat that's going to float in this really large tub. And um, there are balloons at the end of this tub, and each boat has little pins sticking out of it, right? (laughs) And the children have to get a long pipe and blow the pipe, blow onto the sails of their boat to try to pop these balloons. (laughs) And the the boat that they've built is probably with, you get a certain budget, you can buy these kind of materials to build your boat. And you have to do it with someone else, so you're in a team with someone else. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, they all had to make up a sea shanty that they would chant while the (laughs) regatta is doing its thing. And then at the end, the whole classroom gathers around this giant tub. You know, each team gets up and tries to see if they can pop the balloons with their boat. And they're chanting their sea chanty. And everyone's kind of just kind of clapping and cheering. And it's just full of life. 
you know, those kind of um, experiences, if you can infuse the day, not every day with those, of course, but it's children love that. So So, put learning into a context, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, what what learning objectives are you satisfying with such a lesson? Well, there was, uh, (laughs) there was certainly something, you know, with, with buoyancy, there Mm. was something with um, probably velocity there's something with the the use of materials to um, how do I you know budget materials to get a particular um, vehicle together. Mm-hmm. Um, I should ask the science teacher for more information on that. Honestly. <laughs> no, but so, seriously, yeah. the, those those are easy, quick answers. Yeah, but I think it's on the surface. A lot of times we right. think, oh, it's just kids playing, right? Without in in our in our minds as people who've been in this education system, we have a tendency to think like, well, how how, how can you measure that? You know, there's, where's the multiple choice, but where's the, where's the creative and thinking and the problem solving that goes into something. You have to be presented with a problem to know how to solve a problem. Yeah. So they had a challenge that they had to, you know, go after and, and they had to do it collaboratively also, which I think is important. Yeah. There wasn't, you know, the curriculum design in that case with just a, a list of information that needed to be jammed in and spit back out. There's a process there, right? Yeah. Where the kids are applying concepts and and critically thinking and collaborating and I mean Yeah. Or the children would do things like they would have to measure um the the school building and then they'd have to put that into a scale drawing and then they'd have to determine the area of each space. Hmm. So there's a lot of mathematical skills that goes into that. Wouldn't you say? That yeah. you know you know, learning how to draw to scale, calculating um oh, yeah. area. They made towers out of, you know, struts of made, they had to make out of paper. They had to calculate volume and, mm-hmm. you know, weight. So you know, a lot of these good projects. Yeah. And that project, I mean, in terms of like whether or not it sticks with you. And so that's a complaint sometimes I have with the way the education world is set up is like, yeah, you, 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 you got it for the test, but how, how much of our time spent there really um, stays with us? what we've learned. And in those cases, like you're, you're talking about that hands-on approach. Yeah. And, but there's other things that aren't so flashy, like for the elementary, there's a beautiful monster material that teaches how uh, decimals work. When you add, multiply, divide decimals, you know, the children have to be able to manipulate this material. They record it. Then they have to be able to do it abstractly. But because they have a concrete material showing where that decimal point is moving back and forth, they should be able to understand how it's interacting with the operation of math and the numbers. So it's not all just real fun, you know, external, you know, on, say on the edge things. It's really, we all need to know how to work with fractions and decimals, for example. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, so given your experience and, and I mean, you talk about if you've been doing this since 1998, well, even before that, I, I became, Well, I was a pre-primary teacher, three to six year old starting in 1984. Okay. And I did it for 11 years. Then in 1998, started our school up. Yep. And then we moved up from preschool into the elementary and middle school. Okay. Would you be able to offer um, some, from your vantage point, some critique of the way modern education is done? We, we kind of have our, but but our critiques that we've offered, you know, and, and that's that's because, you know, we've, we've seen it from within. Yeah, largely all we know is public education. <laughs> Well, I can harken back to my days as a traditional school principal, and I just think the workbook approach is somewhat deadening. Mm. And I don't know how many teachers are focusing on workbooks and workbook pages. Um, I don't know how many children feel like, like I either know this already and I got to do it again, or I'm doing it, but I really don't get it anyway. You know, I just think that it's not really hitting the particular child when it's all abstract like that. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not in a position to critique education as a whole because, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of great things happening educationally. And, you know, I don't think it's fair to offer a blanket statement like that, but I think when education is limited to two dimensions and particularly simply abstract sort of cognitive calculations and memorization, like you, I think Ben, you said it just takes the soul out of it. it right. Yeah, and the, the, so what, how does faith get incorporated into what you do? I mean, in your school, and how how does how do you see a difference in the kids when you can say, look at what God did? Like even the math setting, like God created this space, and we you know we look at that. How does that 
look different because we we devoid you know as a teacher i wasn't like look what god created you know look <laughs> at you know all these amazing things you know pi was god's design you know i mean the idea of a ratio of circumference over diameter is pi and it's an infinite number that goes on forever who designed that god wow you know <laughs> Yeah, so you're you like how does that look? Are you Yeah, so how does that look in in the your world there where you get to put faith in the center of what you do? Well, and I would what s- difference does that make? Sure. I would say that that like going back to the Montessori approach that I mentioned earlier, a lot of depends on the age, maturity and abstraction of the child. So what you're the example you're just giving about the beautiful infinitude of mathematics I would say a child that's thinking pretty abstractly, maybe seventh, eighth, high school, can start to really have a sense of wonder at that. I don't think younger children are really going to, you know, be picking up on that. But, you know, it it just all depends on the age of the child. So for a little child, a three- to six-year-old, who's completely open, completely ready to accept and respond with love to the presence of God in their life— we would do something like give them the Good Shepherd parable. It's called the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. That's not the only thing we do. But you show them, you present that parable to the children. The Good Shepherd's calling the sheep. He loves the sheep, calls the sheep, knows the sheep, picks the sheep up on his shoulder if he gets lost. Who is this Good Shepherd? That's Jesus. You know, That's a relationship that's being formed in an effective way, affective, You know, like the, my emotions. And young children are really resonant with that. They're ready to respond to relationships and to an invitation to love. So the young child is completely ready to respond to that. Mm. If, if you think of a little three or four-year-old, they're so open and so dear, mm. they don't need any convincing whatsoever, right? <laughs> That's your so, question as to why they want preschool going younger. Yeah. <laughs> because you're saying they're open to receive that and their heart is open and it's about... The battle, not maybe for the American mind, but the American heart, you know? That's interesting. So then let's, and so now let's move up a little bit, like an an, an older child, like say at the elementary years, um, in the catechesis approach that we do, we do lots of different things. But one of the things that we do is show them the scope of salvation history from a grand kind of eagle's viewpoint, like God created the whole universe. He prepared everything. Then he put humans on this earth. And look at everything he gave us. Mm. We have all these gifts at our disposal. And then he gave us a set of hands and a brilliant intelligence so that we could collaborate with him to create even newer things, better things. And you give children not just the description of that, but then you might give them, oh, a box with lots of beautiful rocks and plant samples and animal pictures and you know metals and things to show these are all the gifts of God so that they can also have an experience of um, gratitude for what we've been given as they start to look broader than just like that good shepherd image of a relationship into the the scope of the whole created world that's been offered to us. And they can appreciate that. This is one little tiny niche. There's so many ways to approach these things, right? I'm just telling you, it's coming off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like with as children get a little bit older, um, we can start to show that how there's a great coherence to the plan of God. It all works together so beautifully. So we know that we know that the, Great, one of the great stories of our faith is the Exodus, okay? And what happened at the Red Sea? Death and new life. Death to um, sin and slavery and new life for a people of God. We continue to live that today. We have baptism. That whole uh, moment of the Red Sea is brought to us in the, in the rite of baptism, in the sacrament, where we're dying to sin and we're born to new life. We can experience that ourselves. We're not just spectators of something that happened long ago. The church gives it to us the today. So you could start to see how the child thinks more abstractly, but if you give him this rich content in a way that is really compelling, I think that they respond at their level to the, the greatness of God. Mm, that's great. Yeah, and and uh, you mentioned before we started recording that I mean I assumed that this way of catechesis, you know, um, was exclusive to Catholics, but um, I find it interesting that you said, well, no, that I mean, you know, it's also accessible uh, to our Protestant brothers and sisters, and you mentioned. Uh, as a cl- clarifier or qualifier that, you know, it may be the denominations that are more liturgical minded 
Uh, so I'm curious to know, first off, maybe how that's incorporated to somebody who's not Catholic and wouldn't necessarily start talking about sacraments. Sure. Well, first let off. me just briefly mention mm-hmm. uh, that the Catechesis of Good Shepherd, which is what we're talking about, is a method of uh, spiritual formation for children that uses particular principles that are really grounded in Montessori's understanding of how children develop and then how to respond to that. So you have particular materials, you have a prepared environment, you have mixed-age classes, things like that. So it was developed in the 50s by um, a theologian and a Montessori educator, who both of whom were Catholic. And over time, people became interested in their work and wanted to learn about it, and they started to recognize that there are certain key components of what they were doing that transcended um, denominational lines. For example, con- con- um, encountering Jesus as the good shepherd. You know, that's a Christian point of view. It's not, you know, nobody owns that, the Catholics, the Protestants. It's for all of us as Christians. Mm-hmm. It's biblical. Mm-hmm. And a big source for catechesis of the good shepherd is Scripture. The, another big source is liturgy. So there would be a little bit of a dividing line there, but we're certainly looking to Scripture to look at the life of Christ, to find out the mystery of who are you, God made man, and how did the Scripture reveal that to us? How did the prophets reveal it to us? What is this kingdom of God that Jesus is teaching us? What is the mystery of it? So we look at the scriptural references that he gave there. How are we supposed to live inside this kingdom? What is the moral life supposed to look like? We have lots of gospel maxims and lots of parables that are common to any Christian. So these things are presented to children with really lovely materials and meditations and then an opportunity for them to do their own personal hands-on work that's appealing to them. And so as people started encountering this, they thought, yeah, I want to try this within my own denomination. And so that that one kind of, we would, I guess you could say that a cohesive quality for Christians is sacred scripture. Yeah. You now we all turn to scripture as the revealed word of God. Um, the catechesis also has a strong emphasis on liturgy as the moment that we live out some of that, uh, the spiritual life, you know, in Eucharist or in the sacraments, things like that. This is an area where people of different denominations approached it, started to think of, well, how can I adapt it to my particular faith tradition and my particular practice? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that the sense of like, the, the 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 union point here is the love of and respect for and desire to serve the child. That kind of transcends the denominational boundaries, yep. and that's what pulls people together in this sort of ecumenical forum. It is important that everyone be true to their faith tradition. So as Catholics, we uphold the, the supremacy of the Mass as the source of summit of our faith, the moment we encounter Jesus really, truly present. Mm-hmm. And... Um, for a person that's not Catholic, they would have a different view of that moment of liturgy, of the Mass, and they would have to present that in their own tradition to their children in the way that corresponds to their belief system. Yep. So, you know, any denomination is going to have to take the liturgy and find a way to present it. So as Catholic, I'm in a Catholic tradition, so yeah. I do it the way it was presented for designed for Catholics. But that liturgy makes sense in terms of uh, everything that I've read a little bit beforehand on Montessori, where it's that hands-on, you know, like you're, you— okay, you got the message from scriptures, right? And you're processing that and hearing the story. But now there, there's a physical action usually in our world that corresponds, you know? And you're internalizing some of that through these liturgical actions. Um, I don't know how you guys in the Protestant context would try to bring some of that down to earth, as it were, um, you know, in your Sunday school kind of classroom settings. Um, you know, maybe crafts and, and those right. kinds of things. Yeah, um, I mean, depends on the age group, I guess, probably. Yeah, I mean, yeah. same thing there. I mean, yeah, even then, it's just kind of interesting to think about how we somewhat model our school after the public school and like, oh, yeah. here's information, you know, and so we can be guilty of not experiencing. Oh, and believe me, CCD programs across the country. I've been a catechist on that side of it, and, and it is essentially the same thing. Yeah, I'll try to give two examples in an atrium, yeah. which is the, the space name for the catechesis of the Good Shepherd, the kind of classroom called an atrium. Like for the youngest children, we give them a little model altar, mm. and they put on a patent and a chalice and a cloth and candlesticks and a crucifix and maybe a little corporal. They don't play Mass. They just learn how to set the altar. This is what you see when you go to Mass. Mm. So uh, for a young child, it's appealing, and they'll fall in love with that. So now I want to go to Mass because I'm going to see these things. So we don't necessarily talk about as much as show them something that they can do. 
Another example that's more abstract and for older children is um, we show them, we sit around um, a round table and we put on it a patent and chalice to represent the Eucharist and a statue of the Good Shepherd to represent this is the Good Shepherd Christ calling us to be with him at this moment at the altar. He's calling you, the sheep, to come to him and be fed by him in the Eucharist. That's his call. Who do we encounter when we go there? And then with the children, maybe 10 or 12 year olds old, we would put a picture on the altar of the crucifixion. And then we put a picture, an image depiction of the resurrection. And then we put a, a depiction on the table of an image of the, the second coming of Christ, the, what we call parousia. Do we encounter Christ crucified when we go to mass? Is he there? He is. Mm. Do we encounter Christ risen at mass? He's there. Do we encounter Christ who's to come again? He's there. And we call that the mystery of our faith. We know at the Mass we say, we proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again. We pull that statement from the Mass out to lift up, it's a mystery. Mm -hmm. The scope of this Eucharist, this mystery, is so great that we can't understand it, but we can experience and be drawn into it in some mysterious way. That goes back to that wonder. You, you talked, we were talking about that. like, And I think we mentioned it too. Like When, when it comes to education, if you can just like give them an experience— where they wonder at something like that, a mystery. Yeah, and that is a meditation. Yeah. So, I mean, there's lots of informational pieces too. Mm -hmm. Like we have a little map, not a little, but we have a map of the city of Jerusalem that we have for the children. We tell the whole Paschal mystery through that geographical work. So I want to learn what happened, you know? What happened at the Last Supper? What happened at the Mount of Olives? What happened before Caiaphas? You know, what happened before Pilate? Mm. So there's information. There's a historical reality to our faith. We want children to learn that as well. Yeah, leverage that um, all day, right? But there's just—I'll just give you one other example. There's so many. It's so mm-hmm. brilliant the way this catechesis is put together. One uh, work we give is called "The Mystery of Life and Death," and we plant su- successive plantings of wheat seeds. Maybe you've seen wheatgrass growing, and it yeah. grows really quickly. Yeah. And so Jesus said, "Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. But if it falls to the ground and dies, it produces much fruit." Mm. And so we show them these successive plantings of wheat until you get some that's been planted for a couple of weeks. The people around here will know this. <laughs> you dig it out of the soil. Where's the seed? It's gone. It's gone. It's died. But what is there in its place? New life. Yeah. And what will happen to this new life if it's given the opportunity? It will grow into a wheat stalk. And then what happens to that wheat stalk when it matures? It has 60 seeds. You know, So out of the one seed that died, 60 new seeds grew. So... It's different than telling children that, that I'm telling to you. They, you show them the seeds, you unearth the seeds, you show them the mature wheat stalk, and then you ponder, what is Christ saying here about life and death? What is he saying about his own death and resurrection? And what is he saying about death as we encounter it in our own world? You know, yeah. So these are all big wondering things, so there's, but there's information, there's, you know. Yeah. But I think if we, we have to retain in the faith formation of children— the sense of mystery. Mm-hmm. I think if we've crowded that out, I don't see how people, when they encounter real challenges and problems and evil and suffering, let's say in their 20s, I don't see how they're going to hold on to things if they don't know that there is something here that is so attractive but still a mystery that I can never fathom fully. To me, that's what has to hold people into the life of faith. Yeah, and I... I come back to this a lot when we talk about faith formation, the fear I have as a dad of, of my kids falling into a percentage. I just heard this recently of, of um, who was it now that was just it was t- telling me this, but they said something like, your, your chances are your kids are going to leave the faith. And he, he referenced like a 40% number after a certain time. And, and I'm just like, okay, what can I do? What sort of things can I do? I, I know I don't have this catechesis of the good shepherd at my disposal, but what, what can I start doing? Yeah. You can be a faithful dad. Okay. You know, um, I maybe also heard about the study out of Switzerland in the early two thousands. They studied when children, when children grow up and leave their faith, what percentage left when they had a, pra- a father that was actually a practicing faithful Christian man. And what, and I think, I'm going to get this wrong, but it was like the retention there was like 90%. That's great. Yeah. But if the mother was the faithful practicing adult, it dropped like to 20%. The, the, the example of the father was so powerful yeah. that that served to retain 
um, children in the faith. And it's a study that was done, but I just think that the one thing that fathers can do is lead their family in prayer, mm. show that they love God, and just give that example in a genuine way. It doesn't have to be some kind of catechesis of the Good Shepherd or anything, but sing with your children, pray with your children, show your children that you go to church and that you value this. Yeah. I don't know what else we can really do. Be, you know, I think that's the most fundamental thing that we can do. Yeah, and you can marry the two. I, I would say this. I mean, talking to you, or talking to you, and hearing you lay out some of these lessons, it's not lost on me that boy. Okay, maybe my kid isn't going to your Montessori school, um, and he is going to the public school. But he comes home and he sees dad practicing his faith. What could dad do? Like, let's you know, I, for example, I've taken my boys to adoration. Right, in a way, there's the mystery, there's the physical sacramental. Um, way of living out the faith. I'm doing it with him, you know, the, and I don't know, even like a little lesson about the seeds. I can imagine, you know, uh, going out in the garden yeah, and you're just talking about that stuff while your hands are in the dirt sort of thing. But is it integrated? Integrated was a word. I just thought to, thought to myself as you talked, like our faith is now integrated with like real life stuff. Yeah. And that's, there's so many examples of this. I just, these pulled out the top of my brain. Yeah, yeah. I just want to mention that um, we, before we were, came on the air, I mentioned I have two sons that actually are priests, yes. Dominican priests. And, you know, they're both really good athletes and you know, they're good musicians. And I wasn't expecting them to become priests. Okay. Um, but they did. And my wife says she contends that the main reason that they felt they had a vocation, well, of course, it's God's call to them. <laughs> That's the main reason. But she felt like them getting up and seeing their dad in that chair every morning, praying morning prayer every day, because that's just what I would do. Mm. I didn't make them get up with me, but I always got up and still do and pray. And she felt like it was just the example of their dad living a life of prayer that pulled them into somehow at least be open to this vocation. I don't know if that's true or not. And I'm only saying that because we're talking about the role of men and the role of fathers. Um, for people to ponder and think about who are listening. Yeah, and that's I I couldn't agree more. And that's that's the thing I I like latch onto because you know all my worry and anxiety over that fact. I'm just like, well, I'm 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 trying, doggone it. I'm I'm in there and I'm I'm living it out as you know as real as I can be with it. Yeah, I'm not, it's not contrived, but but in the back of my mind every time it's like, yeah, I'm down on my knees praying this rosary and they can see me, and that's uh, that's something. Absolutely. In in the end, we're going to have to give it over to God, right? They're going to become 22 years old and they're going to be making their own choices. And we'll be done with that kind of like, you know, we have no control at that point. Well, and now you'll, you know, you got a couple of grandkids and and as a grandfather, you'll have a chance too. Yeah. To have some impact. I'll spoil them and I'll pray with them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, Ben, I don't have anything else. I I just, I I do have one more question, but um, anything related to something? That, that you talked about in, on the last episode? Um, You'd like his perspective on. Yeah, well, we talked a lot about the classical Christian approach, and I'm just curious if the Montessori is, I don't want to say competing against or goes along, or like any any word on that. You know, you mentioned wonder. That's one of the four that things the that words, mentioned. Yeah. I would, well, I would say the classical approach is really, if I understand it well, is relying on our Western tradition yes. and all the richness that that has yes. to offer. And I think that that is so important, and it's so lost today. My daughter is going to NKU, Northern Kentucky University. She had one history requirement, so I went with her and looked through the, what are all the history and offerings that you have? Out of like 25 offerings, one course was on Western civilization. There was all these other weird courses that are being offered. (laughs) So this is how people are growing up, to no understanding of the roots of our culture, or our democracy, or our values, or anything. So I think that the classical model is really important. I would say that it's easy to incorporate that into a Montessori setting because if you're going to read particular books, you can read from a classical tradition. If you're going to study particular historical currents, you can study what's key in our in our Western tradition growing up. So I don't think the two are in any way you know exclusive of one another. And so that way I said that Montessori sort of has a curriculum and an approach, but I think that to include these classical ideas is really important, especially as children get into middle school and high school. Does your school go all the way up? Eighth grade. Eighth grade. Okay. 
So potentially then a stepping stone would maybe take to a classical approach for a high school or something yeah, like that, potentially. Sure. Yeah, but yeah. I remember in, uh, one of our teachers had them reading some Shakespeare, mm. had them reading like a, um, a children's Homer in seventh and eighth grade, you know, studying, you know, when they did American history, it studied the great speeches of American history, you know, and the values that led up to that, you know. So there's so much in our, you know, tradition that, uh, and, and especially a children are being taught that can be, um, enforcing and reinforcing the beauty of our Western tradition. It's really in danger of being lost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I was wondering if you could paint a picture for us. So, so Ben and I had talked a little bit here about what like the, the end product of the public school system often is, you know, and in, in little debate as to whether or not it was designed to do so create essentially um, good workers yeah, well, uh, like the industrial model, yeah. yeah, sort of out of Germany, maybe or something. It yes. was yes. it came. Have you heard that? Yes, came yeah. out of ultimately the Frankfurt Institute. Okay, yeah, yeah. and and I mean, you can kind of see it. they, but maybe maybe we were talking. We were, we were even like, yeah, they just wear the kid down to you know take that soul out, and and then they're ready for the quote unquote industrial workforce, you know, um, which is even obsolete now. Mm. Wouldn't you say for many right, people? Yeah. So you wonder then what they're left with, right? How to navigate beyond that. But paint us a picture for, for so somebody who, uh, who has an opportunity to be educated in this different way. What would be the, what would be the difference on the other end? Even a classical, you know, somebody through classical learning or Montessori, they come out and what do those citizens look like? Well, I'm also a proponent of liberal arts education Okay. At the university level, I think that's a good thing to do as opposed to just sort of vocational training, which I think is good. Mm. But I think that we're endowed with the gift of our intelligence. And I think that we need to know how to think. You know, we need to learn. We can see uh, the problems of life through literature. You know, all human types are presented to us and how we respond. I think those models are great for us. So I just think the end point is people that fully live as a human person that think well, that relate to others well, that make good choices. I know that's a very broad component, but I had heard somewhere that of all the CEOs in the country, the second most popular college major had been English Hmm. because, um, you know, a person that's steeped in literature and knows how to be articulate and express himself in writing and verbally is well prepared to address any kind of endeavor. But if you can't think clearly And if you don't understand the way that humans work with one another or the way that we can start to solve problems within not each other, but a particular problem, I think that those things can be applied in particular situations once you get that technical knowledge. But if we're just technical beings, I think we can miss our full humanity of really thinking through the the fullness of how we live. That's pretty, that's kind of vague, I think. No, that's well put. I mean, I, I know it's it doesn't give us like a, a perfectly illustrated example, but but at the same time, I, I I can't agree more. So most people go out of college a lot. Well, not most, but a lot of people go out of college. Let's say you majored in marketing. Mm-hmm. You know, who knows what you're going to end up doing? Right. You may not be in the world of marketing. Okay, mm-hmm. my son Jack majored in economics in college, and then he became a software salesperson, sales mm-hmm. rep. And he was really, really good at it. And he had all kinds of creative ideas. And he was like one of the best in the world at a pretty big software company um, because he could apply his creativity and his um, proactive quality. He's really a self-initiated person. Mm -hmm. And he could apply that to that setting and excel in it. So he didn't need to be trained in it. He had certain personal qualities that enabled him to apply to that and to excel. And that's a great example because – I mean, you're not you're not the student or the or the employee who's just waiting to be told what to do, yeah. waiting for that bell to ring. Yeah, and if you know, most people need to have initiative to to advance, let's say, or to yeah. you know, to have positions of of fulfillment, yeah. responsibility. No, that's great. I mean, I, we could go on and on because there's there's just so much depth to what uh, you do in education. I can sense it, uh, and I can sense it the passion and the. Thank you. Well, yeah, uh, and, and so um, I appreciate. I really appreciate your perspective. Um, I wonder maybe if you could give our listeners a challenge as we wind down here, because you know we're 
we're out there trying to do what's best for sure. our kids. Well, I, you said before we started that most of your listeners are men. Yeah. So yes. I'm going to give a challenge to the men. Can okay. I do that? Yes, yeah. please. Okay. So when I was a principal at our Montessori school, many times, the majority of times, it was the dad that totally surrendered to the mom all decision-making regarding education. <laughs> you go choose the school. You go to the parent conferences. You just keep on top of this, and I'm hands off. Yep. My challenge is the dads is you be at least 50% of this with the mom. Hmm. Go select a school, go talk to the teachers, know what your child's doing, and don't relinquish that responsibility to the, to the mother. Hmm. You, it's part of you hear your, your God-given responsibility is to raise your children. However you choose to do that educationally, whether it's in a public school, an alternative school, a classical school, a home school, it doesn't matter. You are not just the breadwinner of your family. You're the leader of your family. So you need to be engaged in the educational process. Understand why am I making certain decisions? Be a partner with your wife. Talk this through and support her in whatever role that she has. But don't relinquish this to the mom. And that's what I see happening all the time. Mm -hmm. And then at our school, at the Montessori school, what happened would be the mom would be really happy with the child's experience. And all of a sudden, dad would come in and say, well, going into, going into seventh grade now, and I did this. This is my school, and this is where we're going to go now because this is the way I did it. And the child would be like, I'm so happy here. Don't take me away, you know. But the dad would have no sense of what was going on, yeah. and all of a sudden, I'm arbitrarily making this decision. And that was just heartbreaking for the life of the child and also for the relationship between the mom and the dad. Because hmm. if you, especially if you would see a mom engaged and buying into something— and the dad completely removed from it, mm. it was just a total um, kind of dysfunction between that aspect of raising the family. Mm -hmm. So my challenge as a dad is get involved, know what's going on, you know, understand your child, understand where your child's at educationally, what your child's needs are, and be part of the team with the mother. Yeah, I love it. You could have done that better because it was like we teed you up, and I, I swear I didn't uh, yeah. give him <laughs> those words. Yeah, uh, that's similar to what our challenge was for. Our, yeah. Was it? Yeah. So very, very similar. Yeah. Just, so, yeah, you're, you're spot you're, on with that. Yeah, confirming for us. <laughs> Good. Yeah. I think you guys are doing great work. It's yeah. really nice. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. for Thanks for coming on. Yeah, Dan, sure. I appreciate you coming on. Sure, my pleasure. I really do. All right, we got our marching orders. Let's roll. Thanks for tuning in to the Manhood Restored podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and share. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at Manhood Restored Podcast. To check out past episodes and show notes, go to manhoodrestored.tv. You can send us feedback and episode ideas to mightymen at manhoodrestored.tv. That's mightymen at manhoodrestored.tv. Be blessed and be brave. Until next time, mighty men of valor. <laughs>